Good morning, good morning. You are listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. What a morning it has been so far. Beautiful sunny day out there in our Hornsby Kurungai region. A little bit smoky from a bit of back burning, but hopefully you are all staying safe and well. Now, this is a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people, people in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences, their choices and consequences, and regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from what these guests share, we can choose to apply the relevant aspects in our lives and our community and develop programs that found a more sustainable, loving and heartfelt way to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and mental health. No better way to start a Sunday morning, I say. In today's show, we're going to look back at the highlights of Mental Health Week, which we're just completing. Of course, just because we've brought awareness to something, it doesn't mean that it stops at the end of that week. And hopefully what we can do is maybe found a, um, a, a build awareness of Mental Health Week and mental health, good mental health, poor mental health, and the attention we need to pay on it um, onwards from here. We're going to have a look at why we have to have the conversation about mental health at all. And we'll be having two interviews with people who can talk to us specifically about the work they've been doing in this particular Mental Health Week in men's mental health, Gus Warland and Professor Jane Pierkis. Later on in the show, we will be talking to David Hollier from Lifeline and continuing the conversation about mental health, but looking up close and personal at one of the many coping mechanisms, and that is gambling. Uh, it's one that can destroy lives very quickly if support is not uh, is not looked out for. And support, looking out for support, is everything to do with uh, the Man Up show that we will talk about a little bit more in this episode. So... Let's just go into the relationship with between mental and physical health. A government report out this year estimates that, that, that almost half of all Australians will experience a common mental health disorder in their lifetime. So what do we mean by mental illness? Mental illness refers um, to a clinical diagnosable disorder that significantly interferes with an individual's cognitive, emotional and social abilities. So it can be... Um, anxiety, mild anxiety, uh, it can be, uh, you know, deeper anxiety, it can be uh, schizophrenia. Um, at the start of Mental Health Week, sorry, at the end of Mental Health Week, it, at the end of Mental Health Week, it is vital to remind ourselves that those um, living in our homes who might well be starting the HSC at this time um you know, we've, we've got to remind them that it doesn't define them as a human being, whatever the outcomes, we're still going to love them. Um, our exams definitely open doors. Our education is definitely one of the factors that influence our health outcomes and our work outcomes and our well-being outcomes. But if we place too much of a pressure on this time of year, then it really does tip the balance in a young person's head. If you're worried as an adult or as their parent, then they actually feel that, that they're not going to be able to cope. Whereas if you have every confidence in them, they will step up to that plate. And sometimes we've got to let them uh, make their own choices and, and experience their own consequences. And I would much rather experience a consequence where it's a slightly more complicated route to get to where they want to get to than to actually um, witness someone that you love very dearly have a, a mental health breakdown 
or worse, um, attempt to suicide. So it is really um, something that we need to pay very particular attention to because if we don't start talking about it, um, it's just a bit sad to have to talk about it afterwards as opposed to consider what we can do up front and before. So please, uh, please be aware and look after the more sensitive people in our community at this time. Um, what else can I tell you about? Um, yeah, uh, you're, um, Man Up is an incredible uh, television show that has been on this week. The reason why they did it was because uh, why the production company ARS Films made the television show for the ABC was that 80% of Australian males aged over 16 experienced mood disorders, anxiety and disorders and or substance use disorders in a given year. That's actually quite a huge amount. In 2014, 2,160 males died by suicide compared to 704 females and that puts the rate for males at 18.4%. I mean, that is just... A huge number, 75% of the people who who did um, take their own lives were male compared to 25% female. And one of the biggest problems is that males aren't asking for help. And I believe that that will come out through this show and through the interviews that I do. It's not that... Um, that both males and females aren't feeling things and it's not that they're not both experiencing mental health issues. In fact, more females experience poor mental health than males... And that could be skewed one of two ways. One, because women, females, tend to ask for support more. And uh, as a result, they, if they have attempted to take their lives, they have actually called for help and therefore they haven't been able to complete it. Um, males it, males tend to not ask for that help. And this is, this is what we've got to try and um, turn around. Gus Warland actually talks about it very clearly. He lost uh, one of his best friends um, who took his own life and it really made him look very deeply in what it was, what was the link between the stoic ideals of manhood um, that actually so many men are struggling to uphold and its relationship with the high suicide rate amongst um, males in our society. Uh, welcome back. We're going to be talking about Man Up, uh, one man's mission to break the silence, uh, it, it, what it means to be an Aussie man. Now, uh, the Movember Foundation are the principal funders for this amazing three-part series made by Aeris Films for the ABC. It is also acting as research to potentially change future behaviour for men in our society. Um, this is from their press release. Man Up is a sincere attempt to get people to change their attitudes about what it means to be a man and some of the potentially damaging behaviours we expect from men. Now, interestingly, the the uh, you know really when we look at those links about um, what men uh, push down so that that they they're not really addressing the emotions that are coming up was something that um, associate professor Judy Proudfoot at the Black Dog Institute has found in her research um, that the traits which have always been understood to be quintessentially male stoicism self-reliance not sharing your feelings or expressing your emotions are in fact harmful to men now in episode one which broadcast last Tuesday um, Gus Warland 
um, who I will introduce in a little while because I've just got his, uh, his interview coming up. He goes into some typically male environments. He goes to a construction site in Queensland, which in fact um, has, uh, they're six times more likely to die from suicide than from workplace accidents, which is a, a horrific statistic. Um, he talks to Steve Toyer there and um, uh, Gus will talk a little bit about him in the interview that we have. Uh, he goes to Lifeline. Um, that is very um, humbling when you see the work that people at, at Lifeline do uh, every single day. And um, in fact, uh, we're going to be talking to, obviously, a gentleman from Lifeline. Uh, he, as far as I'm aware, he doesn't work on the... Um, on the, in the call centre, but we will ask him. And then he goes out to a, a station, Carlton Hill Station in Western Australia, to see, you know, if the tough stockmen um, have the same issues. And then, um, then very funny, in the city there is, they go to a inner city barber shop to have a look at changing trends in facial hair, which is uh, highly entertaining. And then he does a... a, a, a um, a fashion shoot for GQ. So I'm hoping that you have seen a whole load of... of uh, I'm, I'm hoping you watched it. If you didn't watch it, please go to um, ABC iView and download it. It is... Um, it's really worth having the conversation with the males in your life. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about what's coming up in episode two shortly because, um, again, in that one, there are some really... Uh, quite challenging moments. But without further ado, let me um, let me introduce Gus Wallen to you. As um, uh, as you probably know, uh, he grew up in Hornsby, Wurunga, Pimble. I didn't know any of that. <laughs> he is it though. I did know he he's an Australian television and radio personality, best known for his series of uh, reality television programs on Foxtel, an, an Aussie goes Barmy, an Aussie goes Bolly, and an Aussie goes Calypso. In two thousand and nine, he took up the role of co-hosting Triple M's breakfast show in Sydney. Um, uh, the Grilled Team. And within two years, the Grilled Team doubled their ratings for this time slot and Gus was awarded Best On-Air Newcomer at the 2010 Australian Commercial Radio Awards. Gus is a 46-year-old sporting tragic. He, that's, that's, I'm presuming, what he calls himself. He has uh, been married for 14 years to Vicky and has three children. Women apparently want to meet, want their mothers to meet him and um, blokes want to be him. Gus just wants to give them all a hug, which indeed he attempts to do in one of these episodes. I hope Mo A Man Up will ensure that Gus is known for some someone who stood up for men being who they are, embracing the caring, tender and loving sides of themselves. So without further ado and um, anticipating no technical hitches, uh, may I uh, introduce my interview with Gus Warland. What have you found to be the quintessential male traits, um, perhaps before making this series, so we can get an idea of how they've changed afterwards? Yeah, certainly. My, thought, my thoughts, I suppose, with, with men, um, certainly in Australia, I've spent quite a bit of time in England as well, is that, you know, we're all sort of reasonably stoic and reasonably just want to get on with things. And, you know, there's a certain amount of stuff that gets thrown at you and you've just got to deal with it and get on with it. And even though I was someone that wore my heart on my sleeve, most of my friends and certainly a lot of the blokes I played sport with and my son to a lesser degree were men and boys that, you know, they very hard to know if there was anything wrong. Everything always seemed to be good. Everything seemed to be fine. Um, there wasn't a massive up and there wasn't a massive down. They were just sort of getting 
through life. And I suppose everyone's busy, so you just accept that and you understand that. And um, for me, this whole process has been learning about how good Aussie blokes in particular are at wearing a mask and that mm. mask they put on as they jump in the car to go to work or walk to the train station or the bus stop or however they get into their normal daily life, they just big sigh and they just get on with it and they put the mask on and they get through it. And then at some stage, you know, that mask has, has to come off and whether that means relationships fall apart at home or they haven't got a good relationship with their partner or their children, something has to give at some stage and eventually, um, you know, the simple fact is that we're losing more than 2,300 beautiful Australian men between 15 and 45 every single year and the, and the numbers are increasing. And those numbers are increasing even though we have so much education out there, so much knowledge out there. If you Google anything about um, you know, mental health, it's all there with beautiful people ready to help you, but the numbers are still going up. So you know, it's a very, very sad thing. It is, and I, I guess my question too is, how did you not get sucked into that hardening and that mask? What was the difference for you? I, I think I had that. Mo- I think I had that moment myself. To be honest with you, Lucy, I think there was a time, sort of in and around my late thirties, early forties, and my wife would back myself, back me up, where I was difficult to live with. I think I was changing jobs, I was changing the way that I was living my life. I was I'd gone from a salesman to someone who was on telly and then onto the radio with Triple M and my life changed so much and I really struggled with that. You know, everything should have been so happy, everything should have been so awesome. But it just wasn't for whatever reason. And that's the difficulty with mental health that is that if I break my arm I get a cast put on and it gets better. With mental health, you know, you half the time you're struggling as a man to work out why am I sad? Why are things? Why aren't I feeling fantastic? Because my life, generally, is pretty good. Um, and then, of course, you get yourself down and you get depressed because you know you don't quite know how these emotions are coming up. And then, of course, every stereotype in Australia tells you to man up and to be stoic and to get on with it. And we really love that in our sportsmen. We love that in most characters in TV shows and in movies and so forth. So we get sucked into thinking, well, that's how you become a successful man who deals with stuff in Australia. And we do that silently and we do that by ourselves. Um, And for a period of time there, I did that. But I had a wife who didn't give up on me and she said to me, no, no, there's just something going on, you need to see somebody. And I suppose I was very happy to show vulnerability and I was happy to give myself over to a counsellor who really helped me and we connected together and she got a lot of crap out of me and it allowed me to get back to my normal self. But, you know, if you, during Man Up, I ask people about um, counsellors and they look at me as if, you know, well, that's for a mad person. Yeah. You know, that's for someone who's loony. You know, the, the stereotypical Aussie man doesn't ask for help. We deal with stuff ourselves and um, that's what we need to try to change. Yeah, we don't give enough credit to the to the psychologist being on a par or the counsellor being on a par as the doctor, that it's just a different part of the body, really, do we? Oh, 100%. Mental health, if we took that as us having a cold or um, having some sort of rash or, you know, we would we, that would make a massive change to our lives if we could just understand that the head is just like a toe or a leg or an arm or an mm. elbow. It needs as much help as possible. And if you've got a problem with a car, you take it to a mechanic. You've got a problem with your head, you've got to see a head doctor. You know, yeah. that's, that's, break it down as simply as that. So a quick question for you. Do you think that we champion what we 
have and what we do over and above championing who we are so that when the sportsman ends their role or the people change their jobs, they wonder who they are and what they have to offer to the world. Oh, I think so, for sure. It's just, it's, I mean, it's, it's such a part. And we, when someone does something, you know, we give it so much love and so much attention that it just overblows the fact that, you know, it's not real life. At the end of the day, like a sportsman kicking a goal or scoring a hundred or whatever it might be, it's awesome for that moment, and we can love them or we can cherish them and so forth. But what about that actual person themselves? So many sportsmen who, once they finish their career, not all of them can go into media. So there's a lot of them out there that are really struggling with who they are and and, and what they're going to do with their life moving forward. It's a very very difficult thing, and I think that happens right through our society. We're so keen on talking ourselves up and talking how great everything is where really we should be digging a little bit deeper and having much deeper conversations and hopefully that would make you more rounded and much healthier person overall rather than us getting caught up with keeping up with the Joneses and all this BS that gets flown around. Yeah, so when we talk about role models and we champion role models, really, I mean, I'm really very sensitive to the fact that Jack, your son, has you as a role model because you're role modeling sensitivity and the ability to say, I feel sad, I feel angry, I feel upset, but you're actually at least acknowledging that you're feeling something and finding a way to express that. Yeah, and, and thank you. And that brings a bit of a tear to my eye, you saying that, because it's such a, it's my most important role, bringing up my children, whether it's Jack or Ella and Abby, my daughters, who are very good at expressing themselves, actually. So mm. but it doesn't mean I can take my eyes off them I've got to keep the focus going and let them know there's a open and honest conversation that can be had at any time but yeah I mean for Jack I suppose I just showed him very early on in our relationship that you know I am who I am and that means I wear my heart on my sleeve and I show lots of emotion and I think that's a really good thing and if I bottled up all my emotions well you know, I, I don't know quite what I do with myself. So I'm really glad that I'm sort of open to do that. I'm actually crying as you talk, as I'm talking to you, actually, yeah. at the moment. But, uh, yeah, in terms of role models, um, you know, we, we build up the superhuman sportsmen or, um, you know, um, movie stars and TV stars and stuff. But, you know, of course, we, we're, we're bigging up them as a player or them as an actor or whatever. But them as a person, that's the most important thing. And, you know, role models have a really important role to play in terms of letting, you know, young Aussies know that, hey, you know, I might have kicked the goal and I was a hero at that moment, but I've gone through so much agony and pain and injuries and doubts and emotional things to get to that moment. So we see the whole package rather than just that finished article, if you like, you know, and um, the more people in the public eye um, showing our young Aussie blokes that it's okay to show emotion, the better. Yeah, so on that note, do you think that you as a as a radio presenter, I mean, I know I've seen you do it as a TV presenter, as anyone who sees the, uh, the show this week will see, but as a radio presenter, do you think you've brought a different quality since discovering this uh, this journey that you've been on in making this program, a different quality to the show? I'd like to think so. I really would. I mean, Matt, Maddie Johns and uh, Mark Guy, who are the other two blokes on the grill team, with me. I mean, I've always been sort of the, the more sensitive one, if you like. I've been the fan and I've been the one that, you know, is not in touch, not, not afraid at all to show emotion. But MG, who's six foot five and 120 kilos, who was a real <laughs> hard man of rugby league, I mean, when he talks about his kids and his wife, you know, he, he wells up and he talks in Man Up, the show, um, 
you know, about various topics with our listeners. And, you know, he talks with real heart and real emotion. And But it took him a while to get there. You know, he had to be a certain person on the football field and people just thought that that was him. But, of course, the real person was the emotional one with five children and worrying about the next contract and being able to provide for his family and that type of stuff. Um, you know, he shows a real side of, uh, you know, a softer side to himself as well. And mm. I think Maddie, to a certain degree, does too. I mean, we speak to a lot of men on Triple M and we we have a responsibility to talk to those men, um, you know, with a lot of entertainment. That's what they're listening for. But when it comes to the crunch and really important stuff, then I think as a show we're very good at explaining that, um, you know, we have to understand what's fun and what's entertaining and then what's really important, which is obviously family, friends and making sure that we all look after ourselves. So the show's got a responsibility, but I think we do, as a general rule, do a good job of... Um, of getting that side of, of life out to realise that, you know, fun is fun and sport is sport, but when it comes to the crunch, it's family and, and looking after your health is the most important thing and that's not just your cholesterol or your weight, it's it's your mental health, which is affects so many Aussie blokes in their sort of 20s, 30s and 40s. I mean, when you hear that stat that 2,300 Aussie men take their own life every year and it's the number one killer for that age group, I mean, does that not just completely astound you? Like when I heard that, Dad, I couldn't believe it, Lucy. Yeah, it astounded me, and I also picked up on um, the 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 piece about the fact that women might attempt it more, but they call for help. It's actually the fact yes. that men don't call for help; they don't engage um, at crucial moments. I mean, in the lead up, it would be so much simpler, but even in that crucial moment, they don't yeah. call for help. And yet, yeah, the, exactly. the the gentleman that you interviewed on the construction site who didn't fulfill he didn't go through with it um mm. realize the impact that would have and i think that what comes across and you pick up very well is the ripple effect of suicide on those left yeah. behind very sensitive. absolutely that gentleman you're talking about up on the gold coast he runs a whole you know pack of 500 men who are there every day and we we know we lose more people in the construction industry than any other um steve his name was and he attempted suicide and when it didn't work he woke up in the in the hospital bed and he looked at his partner and his children and immediately knew what he had done and how much it had affected them and he spent the rest of the last four years trying to help other people never get into that situation. So you've got these absolute champions out there that were at such a low point and they've come through the other side and now they're literally on a mission to make sure that no one else goes there. They're the, they're the real heroes out there in Australia. You don't even know about them but every day they're saving they're saving lives, but we need as many people as possible to realise now that to show a bit of vulnerability and to show some emotion is actually a real sign of strength and not weakness. That's yeah. that's the main point. And please do not be there sitting there thinking about things in silence. Get the conversation started with someone, whether it's your, your partner or your mate or someone at Lifeline, a complete stranger. Just let the pressure valve off. A little bit and just start the conversation and that might help you um, work through some stuff and get you healthier again. That's fantastic. Look, thank you so much. I really so appreciate it. Absolute pleasure, Lucy. It was lovely to talk to you and I grew up uh, in Pimble and I went to school in Warunga and I bought my first house in Warunga. So I know, you know, Hornsby and the 
bowling and the bowling guest oh. out there all the time and the and the cinema and stuff before Chatswood was sort of big. That was our oh, way. So I know goodness. that area as well. And um, thanks for all the work that you're doing. All righty. Nice to talk to you, Lucy. Take care. Thank you again. See you Bye. later. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, um, the I'm going to try my second interview that I did. I'm just hoping that this one is going to work a little bit better, which was with Professor Jane Pickus, um, the director for the a director at the Centre for Mental Health in Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. Um, Jane um, currently holds a National Health and Medical Research Council Senior Research Fellowship. God, that's a mouthful. She's published extensively on epidemiology and mental health problems and suicide. And um, at the beginning of the interview, she explained to us what epidemiology is. Essentially, it's, you know, looking at how how the things around us can influence um, our health outcomes. Um, so she got involved in this because they are doing a... Um, a research project on men and how men um, and why men are suiciding or t- sorry attempting to take their own lives and they've got 10 to men research uh, which forms the foundation of a lot of the program that they're doing professor jane Pierce on triple h 100.1 fm welcome professor jane Pierce. thank you so much for joining me on stay in the loop with lucy this morning my pleasure lucy thank you for having me I wondered if you can explain to us um, a little bit about what epidemiology is. Okay, so epidemiology is the, it's really the study of public health. It's, it's, um, it looks at the distribution and determinants of a range of health conditions. Um, and so it looks at um, uh, some of the risk factors that might lead to poor health, but it also looks at some of the protective factors that might um, lead to good health and I guess what we're about to talk about shortly is thinking about some protective factors, thinking about um, ways that in this case a documentary might be really good for men's mental health. It definitely starts the conversation doesn't it? Yeah. Is what's so exciting and the, the documentary is the result of a major study conducted by by you, is, is it not? Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, so, so I, well, I guess the, the documentary is a confluence of a few things. So we have a big epidemiological study going, which is called Ten to Men, where we're um, following 16,000 men and boys um, and looking at changes in their health over time. And one of the things that we found looking at the adults in that study was that um, uh, extreme self-reliance, so you know that one of that stoicism that's often associated with traditional views about masculinity, that self-reliance was associated with suicidal thinking in men. So um, that's important, I guess, because self-reliance is obviously a good quality in lots of circumstances, but maybe too much of it means that men, and and women for that matter, um, who are too self-reliant might perhaps... um, be less likely to turn to others for help, to turn to their mates for help or to turn to professional services for help um, and just to talk, talk about things generally. So, so that study was a trigger for the documentary certainly but the, the documentary also had a number of other sort of drivers. Um, we worked with Eris Films um, who have made the documentary, a fantastic bunch to work with um, 
and Gus Warland came on board because he's um, just the ideal man for the job. So mm -hmm. November funded us to make the documentary, so Eris and Gus made it um, with some input from us kind of content-wise, and our role was mostly to evaluate it. So we've done a randomised controlled trial of it, which is pretty exciting. There's not many other... Well, in fact, we have found no other examples of documentaries with that kind of um, aim of raising awareness and perhaps changing the way people think about things and starting new conversations. We haven't found any examples of where those kinds of documentaries have been evaluated in such a rigorous way. Absolutely. That's extraordinary because I, I think mostly this kind of research lends itself to qualitative where you're asking about people's feelings and how they respond and how yeah, they feel. Yeah, that's right. The randomised control trial makes it much more rigorous. It's much more accepted um, as that's being something that could make a difference. Is that correct? That, absolutely, that's right. So a randomised control trial, not, not everybody may be familiar with what that is, but it's the way that, for example, new medications would often get tested. So you, you would test a, a new drug against a placebo drug. So in our case, we tested Man Up against a control documentary, an unrelated documentary, and we randomised. We had 354 men come and participate in our trial, and we randomised half of them to view Man Up and half of them to view this unrelated documentary, which was about brain training. And we looked at whether Man Up made differences for the men who saw it compared with the men who saw the other documentary. Um, so, and I'm going to cut to the punchline, but the answer is it did. So we were, we were very excited that it was such a good news story. So, for example, um, Man Up looked like it was associated with... Um, changes in men's likelihood of seeking help if they were in, you know, facing tough times um, and also their likelihood of encouraging a mate to do the same. And that's, that's oh. pretty significant, we think. That's huge. That's huge. And that's, as you say, I'm excited too. That is the fact that we can change the trajectory for adults yeah. to do that. Because what that means is that they then become the role models for the younger generation to see that it's okay to do as well. Absolutely, that's right. And we did. We certainly did do some of the more qualitative stuff you're talking about as well. So those who saw Man Up, we asked them about their immediate reactions to Man Up and we asked them a month later too about whether they'd made changes in their lives based on having seen Man Up. And there were certainly lots of great comments. People were very moved by the documentary. People... Um, saw the connection between um, uh, that sort of uh, very traditional um, way of viewing masculinity and um, perhaps not being so inclined to talk to others. Um, and, and our participants were, were just incredibly positive about the whole thing. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I look forward to that coming out. You know, all your research and you write it up, I can imagine it's it's going to actually be a pleasure to do because it's a really good news story. Isn't it's a it? really good news story. It's great. Makes a nice change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, there's probably lots of other um, similar documentaries that are, you know, they have that sort of transformational um, aspiration about them, and you just never know whether they make any difference or not. But but in our case, we've been able to show that that it did make a difference. And the thing that's really great about it is because of because Man Up will be shown, um, so it runs for three episodes, will be shown starting tonight on the ABC and for the next two Tuesdays. 
Um, if the viewership is good, and you know, we're hoping that there'll be a pretty big audience, we'll be able to generalise the findings from, from our smaller study to that population of viewers. So that's great. And they're, they're just the starting point for this conversation. They'll be, they'll be their friends and family who they talk to who may not have seen the show who may also come on board with the discussion. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And through social media because you know, yeah. the conversations that happen there, people encouraging other people to just get talking. It's, it really is an extension of, of, of really breaking down that self-reliance and making it a positive thing to be able yeah. to go out and, and, and look after yourself and be a decision maker, but at the same time know when you need support. That's right, absolutely. So um, my, one of my concerns, and it has been for a few years, is whether we're so entrenched in those ideals and beliefs about what being a man is, and you know, using coining your phrase, the extreme self-reliance, whether it's so entrenched that it's possible to change it in a generation. But when you talk about the research findings, maybe it is. You know, I maybe think it is. Yeah. I think you know, it's it. We we were pretty amazed. We, we you know we were very hopeful that the documentary would have a good impact like this. But you know people said to us, you know it's just a documentary. It's three hours that people might see over a few weeks. Can it really make a difference? But it looks like it really does. Hmm. And but I think maybe the ongoing conversations need to happen to sustain that change and to to really um, to really make a big difference. That's what I was going to say. There has to be there has to be the follow up, doesn't there? The, the yeah. conversations and the organisations that actually start building up role models who walk the talk, like Gus Warland, who's prepared like to Gus be. Warland. Yes, he's prepared to be vulnerable. He's prepared to be sensitive, and yet there's no questioning that he's a strong man who who is perfectly capable of leading a meeting as well. You know. It's, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. That's right. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. I, I really hope that in the future, when, maybe when you're a bit further down with writing up the research, we can have you back to, to discuss it more. Absolutely. I'd love to come back. And indeed, you are listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. And where things are going a little bit haywire this morning. But you know what? the mark of a good presenter is to go with the flow so that's what I'm working on this morning going with the flow um what have we got coming up we have um we're going to talk to uh David Hollier just after the next um piece of music but I thought I'd introduce him first um when we talk about coping mechanisms and when things go wrong in our lives uh, gambling is one of those things that can spiral uh, we can think that we can fix it and then it just, again, it, we just, you know, we're just going to put a little bit more on and we're just going to put some money on something and it's it's going to fix the problem. We're going to, you know, we're going to borrow this money from here, but we'll be able to pay it back. I was listening to uh, an, this American Life a podcast um, interview and it was you could just see how the person was spiralling. And he, as he said, he was spiralling. He ended up, you know, stealing, breaking and entering, a whole load of things he never expected to be doing purely to feed this this um, this urge that he had to make good some of the losses that he'd made. So um, gam- what is gambling? Gambling is the exchange of money, mostly, most commonly on the outcome of an event, but not solely. Um, and it's uh, largely but not solely determined by chance. 
gambling can be viewed as um, uh, continuous or non-continuous, which is continuous is where the outcome is quickly known, say after a after an event like poker machines are, are good examples of that, and non-continuous where there's much longer time lag between placing the bet and knowing the results. So that would be something like the lottery. Uh, now, continuous forms of gambling, so where you get the quick response, that is the majority of problems for gamblers. And now, you know, in 2011 to 12, gamblers spent more than $7.7 billion on gambling products. Now, you know, most recent research shows that Australian sports bettors lost $815 million just in the last year. Now, when we put that into context, we've got um, gambling advertising has more than tripled in the last three years. 1.8 million Australians gambled online last year. So, of course, it's opening up a whole new world. You don't just have to go down to the shop. You can do it online. You can do it anywhere you like. Um, spending on sports betting has tripled over the last five years. And online gamblers are more likely to develop a problem. So it, it's something that um, because of the, you know, the rise and the steep rise, it's definitely a conversation to be had. Indeed, it is Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. Welcome back. Um, my guest today is going to be David Hollier, a counsellor and psychotherapist in private practice, but also working with Lifeline Harbour to Hawkesbury, uh, currently on their Wednesday night gambling help support group. Now, he joins me on the back of t- the foundation of today's show, um, talking about how men are potentially living in an uncomfortable ideal where coping behaviours mask the disconnect from letting them feel the reaction that they might have had something else going on in their lives. Welcome, David. Oh, hi, Lucy. It's, uh, look, it's lovely to talk to you. I mean, it, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things I'm noticing is the number of people, younger people that I'm noticing, having conversations about what they're going to put a bet on or, you know, the um, horse races that are coming up or, you know, just a conversation about betting and uh, that I never actually thought I would hear quite so commonly. You're obviously, you've just started a gambling health support group. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, if you're noticing a difference? Yeah, definitely. We're, we're definitely seeing um, younger and younger men appearing. Uh, there's been sort of cultural profiling, I guess, or, you know, profiling generally of uh, younger gamblers. And traditionally, younger gamblers would often turn up in the construction industry, especially. Um, we'd get, you know, a lot of labourers and that sort of, uh, and tradies turning up. Uh, it's not that they didn't exist elsewhere, but that was one group we were aware of. Uh, and what we're finding is this newer group who are more like still in school. Um, there's starting to be some concerns, you know, like parents, you know, who uh, let their kids have mobile phones um, are suddenly finding that that means that child has access to gambling. So if they can get access to an account, um, they can do that. And I guess the other thing is this massive campaign uh, to connect uh, on the part of the gambling industry, that is, to connect gambling to sport. So I think everyone, listeners and anyone coming across this issue will be well aware <laughs> that you can't watch much sport anymore without being reminded of the odds uh, yeah. and pretty heavy advertising from the betting companies themselves during sport. So that's sort of a connection that's occurred over the last 
been going for a while, but it's really solidified in the last five to ten years. Yeah, I've noticed that um, as they're addressing alcohol advertising in sport, gambling advertising, uh, the sports betting is taking its place. So it's just a shocking, um, it's shocking what's on offer, actually. There's nothing inspiring on offer during any of these games. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I think you just hit the nail on the head uh, with that comparison. I think uh, we, you know, we once had tobacco advertising uh, in sport, and we recognised the da- dangers of tobacco. And I guess it's a little bit different to the tobacco because it is a proven, guaranteed health issue. Every time you have a cigarette, you are doing damage. Yeah. Whereas you can't say that with gambling. No. However. Uh, there is that connection between problem gambling and damage that's absolutely established. And uh, we know that a lot of those problem gamblers, you know, are really, especially those who are trying to change their behaviour, are really struggling with that when they're, you know, bombarded with advertising and what we call triggers uh, to get them <laughs> thinking about gambling again. So, yeah, it is, uh, it is quite a developed uh, process that the industry's got going there. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because they have a vested interest in you not seeking support. So whenever there's something comes on that says be responsible, they actually make money out of you being irresponsible. So there's, there is, isn't a genuine... There, there can't be anything genuine in there because if you do get the support and you don't use their services, then they go out of business. That's true. That's true. I, I wouldn't say there's necessarily a straight 100% conflict of interest there. I think... The gambling industry are not, you know, uh, rapaciously trying to destroy all gamblers. It's no. in their best interests to have those gamblers uh, be sustainable. Yes. Um, uh, so they, I think they are genuinely interested in gamblers uh, becoming viable citizens it doesn't look good for their industry mm-hmm. to have what we have got with problem gambling is you know huge numbers of people who's you know let's face it people's lives really founder on the rocks of gambling pretty consistently in this especially in the state of new south wales <laughs> where yeah. we have you know huge uh, access and exposure to gambling um so i think there is like you know the gambling industry does uh the office of liquor and gaming and uh government do direct money and funding towards supporting people with gambling problems if they want to seek help. Yes. Um, but yes, of course, you're right. There is an obvious tension there uh, where the same people who sell the product are providing the cure for that product. Mm. And it, it's interesting, you, you were saying that it's, there isn't a particular demographic, gambling doesn't prejudice, and the, re, the report from ACOS out this morning talks about poverty having gone up in this country. Yes, and it's no surprise that in areas like Rooty Hill, I think, was the last uh, study of this. Uh, Rooty Hill came up as an area with a lot, both a lot of poverty and the highest rate of um, poker machine gambling. Wow. And one of the heaviest densities of poker machine supply. So there is, you know, it's always hard to do smoking gun cause and effect connections here, but there does seem to be very strong links between uh, socioeconomics and uh percentage likely percentage of those to be losing pretty good money on gambling and i guess you know we're looking at people who can least afford to lose it so absolutely the damage is greater absolutely and what made you specialize in gambling support uh i guess you know uh there was just 
so much going on in that sector all of a sudden and some really good people coming in. And, you know, it was also for me as someone who's worked with substance uh, abuse uh, and the very model of addiction. And gambling has come to really challenge or did come to really challenge the traditional view of addiction, which... Like I say, traditionally did have this idea that there needed to be a substance introduced. Yeah. And what I found really interesting about gambling is when they started to have the technology to be able to, you know, image what was happening in the mind of the gambler, what we found is that the addiction model that we'd always had for substances was working in this sort of advanced way when people played a poker machine, even though there wasn't a foreign substance being introduced, the exact same circuitry, if you like, was being activated wow. in the brain of gamblers. So I think this is sort of to really fascinate me, that idea that it's just behavior. We just get used to certain behaviors um, that can produce the same sort of chemical reactions and, and then our tendency to become very attached to those behaviors. Uh, the same thing was happening in gambling as was happening in um, substance abuse. So that is what really fascinated me. And I, I guess one thing I have to say about gamblers they're often lovely people, yeah. <laughs> uh, unlike a lot of other people who act out in different ways. Uh, gamblers tend to be very respectful of other people in the sense that they do the damage to themselves. And most gamblers that I see, one of their biggest problems uh, is the secrecy and the sort of, I even go as far as saying the shame that they have around their behavior uh, and you know their attempts to keep it very private. And one of the things that most commonly does get a gambler over the line to getting treatment is when they start to recognize the dire effects it's having on the people around them. Hopefully they can start acting before that's got to a critical point, but, you know, it does happen often mm. just around that time. And I think that's been the focus of the New South Wales Troy Grant's um, uh, focus this year was uh, friends and family and how it affects friends and family and that you know the friends and family can actually help you not you know they, the, the memory of them can help you not go into that behavior I think that was their focus of their campaign their video was very emotive yeah yeah and it was one of the things we because a lot of people will see the gambling helpline and one of the connections we sort of to be honest struggled to make in the community uh is between the support that we offer and that comes out of all the gambling services uh, and getting people to understand that's not just for the gamblers themselves. Uh, like, you know, at Lifeline there, we'll mm. see uh, the friends of gamblers, the husbands, the wives, the yeah. children, the parents of gamblers, uh, whose lives are often, you know, really, really heavily influenced by the actions of the gambler. Yes. Yeah. So if we can get those people in often, that person will... We'll be able to work with that person and give them a lot of information and support on how to help the gambler as well as helping themselves to deal with it and just how to set clear boundaries and just generally how to manage the whole process. And we often get really positive knock-on effects there where a family member will come in, but later on the gambler themselves will come in. It's so interesting listening to you talk because I do a lot of work with um, people who struggle to lose weight. And it, okay. and there are real similarities in what you're saying, that you've got to work with the people around them. And actually, if you can get their friends and family involved, it, it really helps address the behavior because, again, it's just another behavior. Um, yes. It's quite fascinating listening and seeing how we're, we're, we're talking about 
um, something that someone is going through that they're not dealing with, that they're using a coping mechanism and or a distraction in order to perhaps not deal with what they're feeling in the first place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think you've seen some of the um, programs that have been around, including on TV, uh, this week around men's mental health and, uh, you know, suicide and these sorts of issues. You know, what we're finding across the board with these things is uh, if we can get people talking, yeah. <laughs> programs like this, um, you've got a situation then when the stigma starts to go down. Once the stigma starts to go down, we know that people are much more likely to, you know, seek help. And, uh, you know, we're still very much in the process of, trying to create that shift especially among guys um there is still that tendency and we see it in gambling uh that guys are going to struggle that little bit more especially again the younger guys um uh, we're finding around sports betting and things like this uh and like i was saying before in that um the more the construction industry the tradey sort of situation where you know we do tend to get that more masculine cultural yeah. <laughs> conversation goes on yeah. and it can be a lot harder for those guys in their cultural just in their social scene to be able to step out of that and say hey i'm i'm not coping or or i'm coping by gambling and that's not really going so well i thought that was a wonderful bit i don't know if you saw man up last week where the cons- yes i did yes. and and the support that they're offering about you know mates for mates i think it's called where they're actually trying to help each other say you know no, we don't need to be that boofy and that, you know, like that hard man image. We can actually look after each other. Absolutely, yeah. And I think Maxie Burke, one of the guys behind that program, um, did a fantastic job of just keeping it very direct and clear. And I think the problem is we often have is a lot of the information that we need to sort of get services up and running needs to be evidence-based, and that's all fine. But what that means is that the language around it becomes very, you know, for the regular person can become a little bit uh, exclusive yeah. or off-putting. And I thought that program, and I think we're generally, as an industry, we're all getting better at just keeping the message clear and simple and getting it out there so it's much more accessible. Yeah. Um, and people can just see that it is just regular people, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's the case with gambling as well. It could yeah. be anyone. Like, I've given up, Lucy, on having any profile of what a problem gambler looks like. Oh. <laughs> there's just no race that there's no race that I haven't have had as a gambling client. Uh, there's no age. Uh, the gender seems to sort of work out pretty evenly over time, even though more males obviously in the sports betting at the moment. Yeah. But, um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. But it is very, very hard to put your finger on who it's likely to be because <laughs> it seems like it just could be anyone. And can I ask, do, do, they, do they have particular personality traits? So I guess I'm asking in a roundabout way, how does it turn from, you know, um, one fun moment in the office where everyone puts a, a bet on the, the you know, a, a, a horse race to suddenly yeah. becoming a problem? Is, is there a tendency to have an addictive personality or, or do you not even see that? Yeah, I, it's interesting, that, that, and that is in the industry and across psychology, an addictive personality, you've just nailed a very controversial phrase there. You know, exactly where the problem exists, <laughs> does it pre-exist? Um, and I would say generally there's something there um, that predisposes a problem gambler to become attached to a kind of behaviour that makes them feel okay. 
Um, and that can be a lot of us. A lot of us will have things that we do to feel okay that we don't call a problem. Like, you know, I happen to be very attached to playing tennis. Mm. If I don't play tennis, I can assure you my wife's <laughs> concerned <laughs> how I'm going to start behaving. Um, but what we generally find with uh, problem gamblers is that at some point in their life, that's become that's a behaviour that's been around that they've it's been normalized for them. Yes. And then at a certain point in their life, they've experienced something that they don't feel like they're coping well with. And then they start to use their activity as a coping mechanism. And once that connection's been made for the gambler of, you know, I feel uncomfortable. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I know what I'll do. I'll go and gamble. At that point, we'd say the problem gambler is in the sort of nascent stage. You know, they're about to... Uh, sort of really double down, if you like, on that habit as their, as their coping mechanism. So then you look at someone going along like that, that behavior itself can become quite compulsive, just like a lot of other people might walk in the door and, of their home and if you ask them not to turn on the television, they'd start mm. growing quite uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, that gambler starts to feel uncomfortable if they don't have access to that activity. And then, as you can imagine different things start to influence it from there. Like if you're talking about a multimillionaire like uh, like great Kerry Packer, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> then you have access to an unending source of money, it seems, so you, your gambling doesn't show up as a problem necessarily. Um, but for most people, they don't live in that world. They have constraints around that. So again, you start to see, like a lot of people I've worked with have been they would say certainly wouldn't be showing up as problem gamblers, but they've been gambling for 20 years. Yeah. And they don't show up on the stats as a problem gambler. It's yeah. just that all their disposable income has gone into a machine. Yeah. And then at a certain point, maybe the income doesn't happen. And the next thing, um, they lose a job or something like that. And the next thing, they show up as problem gamblers because they're gambling their mortgage from the mortgage. They're That's losing right. their house. There. Yeah. Uh, one gentleman I work with is you know, recently having been a success, successful, inverted commas, citizen and gambler for 30 years, mm -hmm. got in a bit of trouble, um, started drawing on his mortgage. The next thing he thought he would be able to pay it back from this or that. Yeah. The house went, then he was into his superannuation. And, you know, this gentleman's at, you know, hitting late 50s, early 60s. Mm -hmm. uh, and the next thing you know, he's got no home, no super. He's lost his job. Yeah. And he can't stop gambling. And now he's into his credit cards. Uh, so, and that's that's a pretty standard progression. So that's someone who might not even we might not even think of as having a gambling problem, uh, unless we knew a lot about his activity. He might not even show up. Mm. So, but other people, I would say the other. So I suppose just answering your question about cause, we try to identify different types of gamblers. And some people are just managing boredom. You know, I work with a lot of people in the city when I see people in there, and a lot of my clients there are businessmen who, or business ladies, um, who are just, you know, not very interested in their life, and yeah. they started to do gambling as yeah. an outlet, yeah. and it's just getting out of control, and they find themselves going in at lunchtime. Now it's starting to threaten their reputation in their workplace. Yeah. Um, so that type of person can just be doing it because they've become compulsively attached to the activity as a way to feel... Like they're doing something interesting. Mm. And of course, you're um, going to have some people whose job it is to gamble, aren't you? Some of the financial institutions, that's their job, you know, to, to gamble on the markets. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you've raised a really uh, 
well, open a can of worms, I'd say there. I have. I didn't realise I was going to. I'm just going, oh, my Lord, <laughs> it's just all coming in. <laughs> <laughs> no, and you're right. Let's face it. Like, the, there's so much of what we'd call standard economic activity yeah. uh, is, in a sense, a gamble. Um, I guess there's just pretty, generally speaking, pretty clear laws about that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> That's a whole different show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I guess the other thing is there that the person doing it is, well, they would at least claim that they are always looking at information and yeah. facts yes. around what is likely to lead to a profit. Yeah. Uh, whereas the gambler, as we know, is in one of the things we talk about with gamblers is magical thinking. Right. And um, there does seem to be this very interesting thing when you sit down with the gambler and very few of these people, you know, uh, you know, most them like most people, they're pretty intelligent people. You sit down with them, it doesn't take them long to understand if they don't already, that they're not going to win. They know that. A lot of the gamblers I work with, they know that they can't win. They, the mm. machines are mathematically programmed for you to lose. Um, wow. <laughs> so I think that's that distinction. And despite the fact that these people know they're losing, they still, at some point in their day or week, make that poor decision to go and gamble. Yeah, because they might be the one everyone else might have lost on that machine. It might be mathematically time for that machine to win. Yes, but even though even that's like a fallacy because of the random nature of the machine. Yeah. And, you know, one of the first things we do is we look with the gambler when we're working with them is we look for the theory of winning that they have uh, and then try to just rationally go through that with them. And, you know, like I say, a lot of gamblers, I don't even need to do that with, with them because I say you know, why do you do it, how do you go? And they say, they'll tell you they have some wins, but the vast majority of the ones I see, they know that they're losing. (laughs) And they know that the system is set up for them to lose, and they know that if they keep going, they're going to keep losing, and yet they can't stop because by that point, the behaviours become very compulsive. Yeah. Um, You know, so... (laughs) What are, um, what are some of the practical steps you can take? I mean, first and for, foremost, get support. Don't try and do it on your own. Would be would be the first one I would come up with. Is that? But what what, what would you have that top of the list, or is there are there other steps to go through before you even go and get help? Um, depending again, but, but look, I would have to say getting help. Yeah, is number one. Uh, but you know, I guess I'm biased there. There there are people out there who would at one point wake up and just decide this is ridiculous, I have to stop Mm -hmm. and make that decision out of their own, you know, volition. Um, For me, however, I'm biased because everyone I've seen has decided to do something about it. And obviously they're all people who, for whom stopping on their own just wasn't possible. Yeah. Um, But, and you know, what what I often find, we say this as counsellors, that by the time the person has come through the door, They've already done a lot of the work, and that, as counsellors and psychotherapists, that we have a lot of material to work with as soon as that person's come through the door because they've already got that will to change or yes. to do something about their Yeah, behavior. they're already engaged. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I guess um, the top of the, you know, we normally say, sort of, well, I certainly sort of talk to a problem gambler, you know, saying, well, we've got two sides to work on here, and one's just the straight practical. Where's your money? What's your access to it? And one of the first things we try to do there is get gamblers to basically control their access to money uh, because when someone comes in and they've been gambling for 20 years, 
and they're still in the grip of the gambling, you know, I generally sort of suggest to them it would be unlikely for them just to walk out of that door after one session and stop gambling. Yes. Yeah. So the first thing they can do is put things in place that will protect them from doing so much damage. Um, ideally, they would be able to speak to at least one person in their life. Again, ideally, if that's an adult and they're in a relationship, that would be the partner. Um, sometimes that's possible. Sometimes people decide it's not. Um, but generally, the first thing is try to just secure their money to limit the damage they're doing. Yeah. In um, its uh, lifeline and Gordon there, uh, we also have financial counselling. So often mm. we'll try to sort of get them to see a financial counsellor who can just go through their money with them if they've got problems there and set up a system that sort of helps them uh, control their gambling uh, or at least limit it in the short term. Uh, And while they're doing that... Sorry? So I was going to say that's vital to have the financial counselling because so often you think if you're going to a financial advisor, they've got an interest in... I don't know that it... It might be that I'm... I've... Well, in fact, if I'm thinking that, other people may be thinking that, that they have a vested interest and they're going to make something out of you. Whereas if life, if it comes through Lifeline, you know that you're going to get sound advice and actually no one's trying to make money out of you. They're actually trying to help you um, manage your money in a more supportive way. Absolutely. And, the, you know, I have to say, I've got just great respect for our financial counsellors who just do such a great job and for all the work we do on the more personal individual aspects of a gambler's problem yeah uh, the work that the financial counselors do to just secure someone and often what they'll do is just get them and contact you know uh, banks and various organizations that gamblers owe money to yeah. and just create a little space and often negotiate on the gambler's behalf just wow. to buy them a little bit of time to get their feet on the ground because uh, often by the time the gamblers come in they're quite discombobulated you know they've yeah. got problems in their life and everything's starting to cave in on them yeah. so the financial side of things just getting a bit of order there a bit of breathing space yeah um and that and same so even if someone doesn't go to the financial council and i just work with them just in that same way uh to get some control around the money and just limit the damage that of then we get to go onto that second side and look at personally what's happening for that person mm-hmm. um around gambling why do they think they're doing it mm-hmm. and we start to basically just trace the history of the gambling yeah work out when it became a problem how and why yeah. and at that point that person ideally starts to be able to you know just see what is it what's the purpose of this gambling in my life yeah and how can i sort of you know um make a different decision yes <laughs> and unfortunately for you know a decent percentage of the problem gamblers that can involve looking at trauma um, and various things that have gone on in that person's life, um, you know, and the, the gambling that they're doing is a way to escape things like that, yes. uh, various issues. And that, so that's sort of when sometimes the process settles in and becomes a slightly longer process um, uh, where things, you know, really have to be looked at and it's a bit harder to get that shift in behaviour or it certainly takes a little bit longer. Whereas someone who, you know, like I say, some of the people I see who are what I would call more just compulsive gamblers in the sense that they're just doing it because they're not sure what else to do mm-hmm. and they're bored or they're frustrated and they've got this activity they just can't stop. Often those people you can just work to redirect their activities and try to, you know, get them back in the habit of doing some of the other things they might have done years ago. 
um, and just rediscover some other activities to replace the gambling. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And and build their self-worth so that they, uh, you know, they find more uh, satisfaction out of life and they don't have that empty hole that they're trying to fill, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things that... Uh, we, we say quite regularly on this show is it's important not to be defined by the problem. So, you know, um, we can call someone a gambler and we can, we can call someone a reformed gambler, but actually uh, gambling is the behavior you're using to cope with the reactions that you're, or to escape, you know, as an escape tactic. Uh, it's, it's so, it, it can be very difficult in that recovery model to not define yourself by your illness or your your um addiction have is that absolutely. what you find yeah oh absolutely and that's that's where the gambling does kick into the or cross over into that territory the secrecy and the shame you know? yeah um because once a person has done that they start to they, they cannot think of themselves without thinking of this sort of dark secret that they're carrying and mm. uh and it becomes very very hard for them to not identify with that mm-hmm. um at which is to some extent if they're going to take responsibility for it and change it it's essential that they recognize that it is a part of them that is doing it yes but you're right lucy it's one of the things we do is work really carefully to because 99 percent of the time you establish that the person has a life outside of gambling yes but they they don't even see that anymore so mm-hmm. often you know when you remind the gambler that well you're also you know working pretty well and or maybe you know holding a holding down a job or you know, participating in relationships and doing a whole lot of other things, but they just think they are the gambler. Yes. And uh, as you say, if you can get the person to just recognise that they're themselves and they happen to have a problem with an activity, Mm. then they're shifting the point of identification away from the activity of gambling and just back onto themselves as someone who, uh, hopefully, uh, can sort of get in there and act differently. So what would you say a friend or a family member who was concerned about someone's behaviour, how could they start the conversation? Um, well, you know, if a friend or a family member has seen that someone really is uh, in that compulsive cycle, we talk about the gambling cycle, and I guess to identify that just to help people get a sense of that, the main two things we're looking at just in terms of the gambling behaviour itself is even if the you're looking out for a gambler who, even if they have a win, that money seems to just go straight back in. Yeah. Um, that's a real sign um, of problem gambling. Uh, the other one would be um, the chasing chasing losses. So there's this idea of responsible gambling that someone goes and they put the, any money they put into a machine or in a sports bet or anything like that on a horse, they see that money as potentially gone. Mm. You know, like I'm going to just put $50 in and if I, and if I lose it, I walk away. Whereas generally a problem gambler, they're thinking of their money as money that they're going to win with such that as soon as it goes, and it will go, because of the mathematics, it's very fixed, that money will go um, as they play, the longer they play. Um, But the problem gambler will see that money as money they have to get back and then start chasing the losses, you know. So if anyone sees anyone in that situation and it seems to be in that cyclical nature, we know they're in that problem gambling cycle. Um, and yeah, and I think ideally, if you can, if person is open to it, if you can speak to that person and just say, you know, it's okay, <laughs> it happens to lots of different people. Are you okay with it? But it does seem to be a problem. And if you can raise the issue with that person directly and just remind them that you know 
there's services available and you can get help. Um, and it's, uh, you know, a good free service. Mm-hmm. Um, then get that person to come in. That's great. Uh, if you're not sure, and we do have people come in, Lucy, who just want to have one or two sessions and just basically get a whole lot of facts on the on the process yeah. and work out even how to have that conversation. Sometimes I'll just sit down with a parent uh, or a child sometimes mm-hmm. um, of a gambler um, and just talk with that person on what are the most likely experiences that the gambler is having uh, and how it works and what's the best way to sort of broach the subject with the gambler. And then they'll go away after one or two sessions and um, go and have that chat with that gambler. Um, other times, the you know, person will come in and then will find out that their lives have actually been in turmoil for quite some time and they've been under a lot of stress yeah. uh, and that they've actually really needed someone to talk to and a bit of support around that. Yeah. Um, because if, you know, you're with someone that you love who's gambling and they're drawing down your money and you're starting to feel insecure and you're having issues with trust in the relationship now, a lot's going on for the person that's with the gambler. So there's, you know, can be quite a bit to deal with there and it can really help to talk about good strategies around setting boundaries and all that sort of thing. Wonderful. Um, yeah, but obviously the aim is at some point to have that gambler feel that they can get the support and that it's worth taking that step, you know. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Now, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Uh, they can call us direct at Lifeline in Gordon, yep. or they can call us on the gambling help uh, number. That's one eight hundred eight five six eight hundred, I believe. That's the one. Thank you, Lucy. <laughs> That's all right. And um, <laughs> so I'm just thinking, oh, where is it? It's a bit early in the morning. That's okay. Um, I'm going to put all of these details on the website as well, so people can just have a look and they can they can get in touch there and make sure that you know I'll make sure that any of the links that are needed are there as well. And you've just started yeah. your um, your support group, haven't you? So obviously. Um, people are too late to maybe sign up for this one, but maybe... Oh, no, no, oh. no, that's actually... Um, no, that support group's actually starting um, not this Wednesday, the following oh, Wednesday. perfect. And that's, and that's something we've had as an, sort of an adjunct to the personal counselling. It's something we've set up at Gordon. It's quite unique, actually, and it's a six-week program. Um, and, you know, for some people, they'll want to come in and just be much more one-to-one. Yep. Uh, but for other people, that can be a bit intense, and the group's a really good way for people to come in and just focus on really practical strategies for how to confront their gambling. And in that, we just sort of take people through that process of, you know, where it might have come from, just sort of trace what how the gambling works in their lives and look at just coming up with lots of different strategies. And you see some people in that really benefit from the sort of, you know, seeing that other people are just in the same situation as them. Yes. Um, and again, yeah, so. reduces that stigma, doesn't it? When you see that other people have the same problems, you just feel like you've got support. It's not just you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think the real the real terror for us is isolation. That's the thing that we see that's just yeah. so debilitating for people. People become isolated and start to believe that there's nothing that can be done. And at that point, you know, we think people are in a bit of danger. And and that's the other thing I'd really suggest to people. If they see people withdrawing, um, and if you know someone who you were maybe thinking of talking to about gambling, but then notice that, gee, you haven't seen them for a while, yeah, <laughs> uh, that can be that moment when it's a really good idea just to give them a call and try and just have a coffee with them, catch up, have a drink, whatever, uh, and just sort of check in because... 
that could be the moment when someone will reach out um, after they've disappeared for a while. Yes. They might start to recognise they are spiralling down a bit. So, okay. yeah, any time you can get to someone at that point, uh, we're in a better position. Perfect. Good top tip. So the 26th of October, a six-week program at Lifeline in Gordon. Yes. All yes, right. that's starting then. Perfect. I just checked the, the date two weeks from today because I, I, di- I had my paperwork said the 12th of October. So I'm very pleased we haven't missed the start of it. Very pleased. Yes. Yes, that's starting on the 26th. All right. Lovely. Thank you, David. Um, I'm, I've learned so much today. I, had, I clearly had a picture of what I thought I was going to learn. And you've, uh, you've blasted it out of the water. I've learned heaps more. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the program. You're welcome. We'll have to have you back or in the studio at another time. Anytime, Lucy. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. Welcome back. Um, what can I tell you? We're coming towards the end of the show. Um, the second episode of um, Man Up is, is on this Tuesday. Gus Warland finds himself challenged by um, going to see some other organisations, Mates Helping Mate, Mate Helping Mate, uh, which is a straight-talking men's group in the country. Uh, Really lovely to see that one. And then Open Up to Naked Yoga. I can only tell you that that was a bit horrifying and I would um, avert your eyes should you not want to see uh, naked yoga up close and personal because um, all is revealed. There is no holding back, which was a bit of a shock for me. I think it was on before nine o'clock when I looked at it. Um, uh, Then also PTSD and Mates for Mates and how they're looking after uh, war-inflicted, often dealing with war-inflicted injuries from ex-defence personnel. One of the highlights of the show this coming week is um, when Tom Harkin goes into... uh, Gus's son, teenage son's school, Jack, and they run a workshop on uh, getting boys of all ages to open up. And so they do it on this uh, class of boys and the understanding that they bring to each other. And it's just, I'm not going to spoil it. You have to see it. It it really is extraordinary. So that is on at 8.30 on Tuesday night. We're coming to the end of our show today, so next week's show will be a studio full of people um, celebrating Children's Week, which celebrate, celebrates the rights of children to enjoy childhood. Um, uh, now, uh, it is also a time for children to demonstrate their talents, skills and abilities. Now, although I won't have children in the studio with me, I will have young people. Um, the, the students from Mount St. Benedict are going to come and tell us what they've been up to in the States, and I have another surprise guest next week as well. Please um, t- tune in and find out all about that next Sunday at 8.30 on Triple H 100.1 FM. The podcast for today's show with all the interviews that you weren't able to hear will be available through the Stay in the Loop with Lucy website and on SoundCloud. And if you want to get updates, then just remember to like the Facebook at Stay in the Loop with Lucy webpage. Um, all of those links will be available on the Triple H homepage. And soon we will be hosting podcasts on that Triple H homepage. So watch this space till next week's show remember to take a moment to look after you connect with the amazing people in our community be kind be caring be love be all of you you have been listening to stay in the loop with lucy on triple h 100.1 fm